Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to um, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. Thanks to Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, I'm Bill. Uh, each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Uh, our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saved lives. Today, my guests are Travis and James. They're members of Narcotics Anonymous, and they're going to be sharing their experience of drug addiction and how NA helped them recover. So welcome, guys, to the 3CR studio today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we usually, we usually start talking about what it's like growing up, the things that influence us, and what, uh, and you know, when when we sort of came into contact with drugs or alcohol, and how that influenced our our lives growing up. So, Travis, what was it like growing up for you? Um, growing up for me was uh, always felt like I didn't fit in, but coming of age, I got really good at sport. And then I started to think I f- uh, fitted in, but it was only people-pleasing because I was good at sport. I managed to actually get a group of friends and stuff that liked me for what I could do, not who I was. So when I went home at night and stuff, I always still felt like I didn't fit in, I wasn't in the cool group. But sport got me through that. And the same thing with at school. When I went to school, um, being reasonably good at academics and stuff, you just always make me fit in reasonably well. And But then when you left, you still were unsure of yourself, always people-pleasing. Um, so it sort of drove me to be better at school and better at my sport. And that's generally what I found. Yeah. So what was family life like? Um, my family were very supportive. Uh, helped me a lot. My dad wasn't around a lot because he walked, worked a lot just to pay for everything that we got to do. Um, I got to play uh, basketball at a high level. They used to take me to basketball. They used to take me to football. My mother was always there to support me, but my dad was never there because he was always working. Um, that I missed not seeing my dad a lot, but he just seemed to have to work a lot for us to get by. Uh, we never had heaps, but we had enough. I always, like, never went without. But it was like the cooler kids had everything and you didn't have it. So you noticed that a little bit and, I don't know, it played on your conscience a little bit. They did the best they could and I never went without anything, so I really got nothing to complain about, but it's not what society made you feel like. Like you felt out of place a little bit. Yeah, okay. So any drug or alcohol problems in your family? Uh, grandfather was an alcoholic. He died when I, a day before I was born, got run over by a tractor drunk. Uh, uncle was an alcoholic and I never knew much about my grandfather because dad didn't talk about him a lot but what you did know was it wasn't good really is <laughs> okay um, so um, James what about you what was life like for you growing up uh, life for me uh, was in my home it was a very cultural upbringing um, my dad being Indian um in, on my father's side, there was a lot of alcoholism in the family, uncles, and, and my dad drank a fair bit too. Um, knowing what I know now, uh, that feeling that I always had inside wasn't just the feeling of being different, but I can identify it now as the feeling of 
of not being good enough or the fear of not being good enough uh, and not measuring up, uh, inadequacy, embarrassment, yeah. um, often for no reason. And, and I, I attribute to that mostly to um, the expectations of, a, of that, that cultural sort of uh, side yeah. of, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so what was it like growing up for you, you know, what, um, as far as school goes... Well, um, that that sort of disposition and that feeling that I carried with me um, stunted my my social ability, I believe. And uh, my mother, she knew that I struggled at school, and I was being bullied a fair bit. Um, her sort of solution to the, to that was um, pack me an extra lunchbox and uh, give me enough food to eat uh, through my lunch break, so I didn't have to socialise and. Uh, and I think that that's the first sort of sign that that addiction was uh, running my life. Um, the use of food to cope with how I was feeling inside. Okay. Um, so, did your dad try and help you? You know, he obviously tried to get you to do better, but did he help you? Um, he's he he all. I'm not saying that my dad didn't accept me for who I was or love me. It was sort of his way of bringing out my potential in the fullest was to was to sort of concentrate on what was lacking. So if I'd get yeah. 90%, 90% in a test, he'd, he'd be focused on, okay, what's going on with that 10% and sort of not get accolades for, for the 90%. Yeah, okay. There's always there's room for improvement. Yeah, there's always room. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so... Being at school and being being bullied was, you know, is difficult for all kids. So, did you did that alleviate? Did you get over that? Did things change or not? No, I don't, I don't believe I did. I did, I never addressed that in a healthy way. Um, I I went on to using food more and more. Um, even um, developed an eating disorder, and then the development of beliefs about myself and the rest of the world just got negative and worse. Yeah, okay. So did you have any siblings, brothers or sisters? Yeah, uh, I had a sister who I was yeah. very close with. And uh, she she had the same challenges as me um, growing up in my family and at school. However, um, she tended to cope and find healthy ways of, of dealing with how she felt Opposed to me. Okay, right. Uh, so back to you, Travis. Um, so growing up, being being in sport, there's there's often a lot of alcohol in sport. So was that part of your life? Yeah, it was part of the culture. Yeah. The harder you drank, and the like, the easier yeah, and the harder you played, the better you were. It seemed to be an image thing. Yeah. And ever since I was sixteen, playing thirds footy, it was get some drinks after work, after winning the game or. You know, you'd go to a party, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so I got really, really into the culture. And then as I got older and still played uh, top-level sport, it seemed to be that's the ones I was attracted to. Yeah. Uh, it seemed to be cool. Image yeah. was cool. You could drink hard and you could play well. Yeah. And society thought you're a legend. Yeah. You know, and that's what you thought, you yes. know. And, yeah, so really, and all it ever did was just taint how far you could get. You know, you don't realise until later on that it just it stopped you from going any further than what your potential was. Yeah. It sort of was like, yeah, you look good, 
and you thought you looked good and people used to talk stories about it, but you weren't playing to your full potential and stuff like that all the yeah. time. So what sort of things did you get involved in? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, some, so we used to go away for basketball tournaments and it was more a boys' weekend away than it was playing in the actual tournament. We were playing top-level A-grade basketball at different places and, yeah, we'd be drinking during the day, still playing top-level teams and winning and then still going on to drink and some of us had the worst hangovers and you weren't real good looking in the mornings but you still went and played. Yeah. <laughs> It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So did you feel invincible? Yeah. 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 You felt better then because it was like they're all training, they're all doing all the right things and, you know, doing everything, you know, going to bed early and stuff like that. We're turning up hungover and still beating them. Yeah. So it was like you didn't think anything of it. Okay. Um, so once you left school then, what was life like? Uh, I did quite well. I got an apprenticeship with a good company in Melbourne um, I was yeah, I was going like I got uh, three hundred and fifty people applied for my job. I got the, uh, I got the job, and I moved down to Melbourne, and life sort of changed. So I was doing an apprenticeship, and then I started working in nightclubs. And for me, this was like heaven. All of a sudden, I'm around alcohol, I'm around a fast life, and it was like superstar. It's like being a superstar is the way they sort of made you feel. Yeah, and looking back on it, it's not. That superstarish. <laughs> There's not many people that are still manage a nightclub that aren't like dead, yeah. or you know they've got bad, uh, big issues. Um, it doesn't really get you anywhere. There's a lot of crime around it. You meet the wrong friends, and you end up in a circle of people that you think's cool at the time, but it's not the coolest place in the world. And I really don't know many of them now. Yeah, okay. to this day. Yeah. So, what were your relationships like then? Uh, pretty good, but I was trying to balance two lives, so it was hectic. It was very exhausting, you know, going to a, a job where everyone was straight all the time and sober and stuff, and they had normal lives and families and stuff, and then going after work to work in nightclubs every night. And it was nothing for me to turn up in the morning and sleep in the ute an hour before, go straight to work and sleep in the back of my ute an hour before work started. Yeah. And I thought I was sober, but obviously I don't think I was. <laughs> So what did your family think? Well, I hear a lot of it. Like, because uh, moving down to Melbourne, it was hard to pay pay the way. You know, I didn't go to university because it wasn't affordable. And when I was an apprentice in Melbourne, that was hard to pay for. So when I got a, a second job in nightclubs, it was good money to come in and I didn't have to pay to drink because yeah. it yeah. was on the house. Yeah. <laughs> so I got the best of both worlds, I thought. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so back to you then, James. Um so, your mum was sort of concerned for you. Yep. So, did, was that did that help you anyway? Well, knowing that she was sort of on your side, it it did. However, now I understand that she was enabling me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 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 we've since I've been in recovery, you know, uh, the the sort of codependent and and toxic parts of our the relationship I had with my mum and my dad and my sister, you know, we've been able to sort of undo and and, um, and be able to connect on a deeper level um, because of that. Um, so h- how did you find then? Were you... Could you be honest with your mum about what was going on or not? No. I couldn't, I couldn't be honest with anybody about how I was feeling. Um, that That terrible truth that I would never tell anyone that I didn't 
feel like I measured up was going to be a secret, and I'd take it to the death if I had to. Yeah. Okay. So, um, did you did you feel really low? Was that was that a general feeling? Yeah, definitely, really low. Um, you know, towards suicidal and homicidal um, would be would be a daily occurrence for me. Um, you know, until until I found activities that really made my happy endorphins go up. Like uh, I'd always be really attracted to illegal things, uh, dangerous things, um, things that I could get in trouble for, stealing, manipulating. Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and when I was, when I was in that activity and behavior, how I felt inside about myself wasn't prevalent. Yeah. Okay. So did those sort of activities bring you, yeah, in view of the police? Oh yeah. Um, it was, I was about 14 years old when, you know, I'd snuck out of home and, uh, um, my my mother would have gone to wake me up for school, and I wasn't in my bed. And, and actually, I was at the police station and and had and had stolen a couple of cars after after breaking into them. You know, uh, with 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 the cruel kids that didn't go to school, and that that was the last straw for her. Um, she said, "You know, I've had enough. You're going to go to Melbourne to live with your father." And um, and that that when I when that when I did that, um, I guess. That was the first time that I was at school and and had a group of I don't know if you could call them friends, but when I was accepted, uh, and that was because I had something in common with those people, and that was they like to do the wrong thing. I li- I like to drink. They like to drink. Started painting trains, listening to Dr. Dre, and I wasn't even like sort of I was on the bottom echelon of that friends group but at least at least I was accepted you know yeah so when did you start um using drugs and alcohol uh, it was around the same time where when I was drinking until I was either punching something or punching someone or passing out um smoking dope it's the harder drugs that I got stuck into um when I was about 16 um which were quite easy to get your hands on in, you know, the western suburbs of Melbourne. Okay. Um, so uh, what about you, Travis? When did you get um, introduced to drugs? Uh, when I moved to Melbourne. Okay. And when I hooked up in the, the nightclub scene. Okay. So how old were you there, about? Uh, 18. Okay. And that's where, when you're drinking... If you took amphetamine, you could drink twice as much. I was like, this is a godsend. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't get a hangover the same to start off with. And it was like I was doing too many shifts because I love working for them. I'd never knock them back, being a people pleaser. And you ended up relying on it. <clears throat> so you were doing, you were just, it's a vicious circle of uh, working for, uh, for money then spending on drugs to work again. Yeah. And you didn't see that at times. So you really didn't save anything. No, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it costs a lot to be on drugs yeah. and alcohol in real terms. Yeah. Um, so, did you did you feel like you fitted into that scene? Was that sort of a natural fit? You could relax in that environment. I felt like I got popularity because mm-hmm. I was I was the country kid, yeah. and they all found it like I, I, they made you feel special. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, yeah, and because I was naive to a lot of stuff. They found that a little bit amusing, you know. So it was like yeah. you're a little bit like class clown, yeah. but in <laughs> in that that world. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, well, listen, we might take uh, take a break. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. Uh, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we've got over 100 episodes of the show available as podcasts from our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. Um, if you want to send us a message, you can contact us via 3CR on 9419 8377, email us at 3crlivingfree at gmail.com, and we're also on Twitter as 3CR Free. I'm talking with Travis and James about recovery from drug addiction with the help of Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so, Travis, um, yep. working was was difficult, but you were doing a pretty good job and enjoying it. So, when did your did your drinking or drug use cause you prob- you problems? Um, when you started having to avoid jobs that um, had drug testing and stuff it's like a lot of jobs that I could have applied for I had to miss out on and then I got a couple of jobs and you had to work out how to avoid the drug testing like poor sickie no talk to someone find out when they're coming in so it was always in the back of your mind of getting caught and that wasn't the greatest feeling you know so it's career opportunities yeah drop down and also getting arrested takes away career opportunities that's because of the drug use the circles will have it on you okay um, so what about drugs and alcohol often bring you in conflict with people. So did it? Did you have any of those issues when you were using? Yeah, short-tempered, yeah. like uh, discussions where you thought you were right and looking back on it, you might have been correct, but you could have went about it a lot different way. So, and the normal person doesn't know that you've been up and you're tired and they don't compensate for that. No. So, <laughs> Why would they? <laughs> they just cop the raw end of it. And, yeah, I've had some incidences I've lost jobs over. I've been sent to anger management um, and really thought there was nothing wrong with me. <laughs> That's the insanity of it. Like, I'm in anger management telling them they got it wrong. Yep. And, yeah, they got frustrated and kicked me out of that. So it's probably not a good look. <laughs> no. So did you find it easy getting jobs? Uh, I did find it reasonably easy getting jobs because I got good qualifications and good people skills when I'm not tired. (laughs) (laughs) That's telling, isn't it? (laughs) Right. Um, So, James, um, your dad, you moved down with your dad and you got in with the wrong crowd. So what did your dad think? Well, um, my dad, his his best efforts to change my undesirable sort of behaviours... he he only had a couple of tools in, in in his toolbox for that, and that was to reinforce guilt and shame. Yeah, which is like you've ruined the family, you know? <laughs> um, or not speak to me. Um, yep. And and you know th- he was just doing the best he had, and and th- th- at the time. Um, so was that was that good? Did he help you achieve things? No, not at all. Um, I guilt and shame is something that I used on a lot. You know, um, and eventually it's the guilt and shame that 
no amount of drugs could cover that you know got me clean as well yeah so there's there's a positive but it's just overwhelming right yeah yeah um so did you end up finishing school yeah uh, i had to um my dad would would uh would make sure that i finished school um it wasn't sort of acceptable not to finish school um who's the type of bloke he 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 got me he he picked my subjects for me but he did it in a way where he made it he made me think that i picked them so, um <laughs> that's good controlling right. behavior <laughs> and then when i struggled with them he got me tutors so um what happened then was you know i eventually i, I lied to him how i was going at school and, and when i got a really bad enter score i told him that i got the enter score i needed and uh However, I didn't want to do what I had chosen. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what did you do? How did? What sort of work did you get? Uh, I followed in his footsteps. He 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 suggested that while I choose what I want to do uh, to get started in an apprenticeship in refrigeration and air conditioning, and um, and it was about two or three months into that working with him where uh, the customer witnessed like World War Three in their backyard <laughs> <laughs> with us screaming and yelling at each other. And then I, I moved on to another company. Yeah. So was that more successful? Yeah, Having Dad out of the way? It, de- it definitely was. <sighs> okay. Um, so what about your drug and alcohol use at this point then? Well, you know, um, as long as I could cover that, that those feelings I talked about earlier about, you know, guilt and sh- uh, guilt, shame... Uh, not measuring up, inadequacy, low self-esteem. You know, it didn't didn't really matter what morals I compromised, like lying to my family about it, or or stealing or manipulating. You know, um, it was when it was when it wasn't just a time came when it wasn't just the the inconsistency and the unreliability and um, the unprofessional emotional volatility at work. It was. It was when I realised that I wasn't fulfilling my potential as a man. Yeah. And I wasn't growing up to be the man I was supposed to be. That um, that led to, you know, my rock bottom. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, Travis, what 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 caused you to think about the way you were living and your drug and alcohol use? I wasn't a lot thought about it for a lot of years. It was like 23 years. I kept going down the same path, changing jobs, uh, not ever been able to save money. That was the one thing that I couldn't work out because I had great jobs, great money, and I just the more I earned, the more I spent. And it was like I was playing a lot of sport and I ended up dislocating my shoulder at a shoulder reconstruction, which took me away from my uh, career that I started with. And what I knew, so I fell harder and harder into the drug world, but thought it was the norm. So that kept going until finally that I had a, um, as they say, a location change. Yeah, sold my house to to get rid of all the shit that I thought I've created for myself, and moved places. But I took it with me. <laughs> so the the location change didn't help. Didn't change the lifestyle or anything like that. And what finally brought me to my knees was being arrested for doing the wrong thing. I had a house full of pot and got arrested at the front door of my new place and <laughs> ended up in the cells for seven days 
and with a lot of young people that are dealing with ice addiction and stuff, and it really opened my eyes up to, wow, you know. <laughs> Life. <laughs> this is where I am. <laughs> yeah. So had you been in trouble with the police before? Yeah, a few times. Yeah. Uh, and all to do with drugs, like scoring drugs at places where they'd already raided and knocked on the door, um, growing marijuana myself, and just the associations, the, the groups of people that you hung out and socialised with, Somebody was always doing something wrong. Yeah. So was it expensive to use drugs? Yeah, very expensive. Uh, when I sold my house, I got good money for my house, um, and I got a 90 grand deposit. I couldn't wait. Like, I was hassling the real estate. When do I get my deposit? Like, for selling the house, and I spent that 90 grand in a month. Wow. And I've probably got oh, maybe three pair of sneakers and a couple of good shirts to show for it. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a loss. Um so what did your family think when you were going through all this? Uh, that's hard to say, but I do know my mum worried so much that she ended up in hospital, and I was really close with my mum. And the day my dad rang me and said, look, you've got to stop calling your mother because you're upsetting her, and I didn't understand it probably. That broke yeah. my heart. Yeah. Like, and that pushed me hard to take more drugs because I thought I'd wrecked everything. And it was like, oh, well, I'll just be on my own now. Yeah. And I've always been really close with mum, but that got me closer with my father. Because he's like he's never really he's a really silent man, just does and leads by example. And you look back on it now and you think, yeah, well, I hate admitting that whatever he said was pretty well right. Yeah, I just no. didn't want to do it. Yeah, you, didn't, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to admit that too early. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, what about you, James? What 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 caused you to think that you want to change? Um, it was. It was through the help of my family, um, who stuck by me through through my whole life. You know, my mum and my sister and my dad. You know, they got together and and they interviewed a lot of private rehabs and and picked one that they thought would have been suitable for me. And uh, you know, my dad picked me up from home one day and I, I agreed to doing some counselling. You know, and uh, we we got there. We went down to St Kilda and um, went into the room and, and then you know everyone was there. Yeah, um, and what your whole family? My whole family: yeah. auntie, um, sister, mum, dad, um, and and the manager of the rehab was there in front of a whiteboard, and uh, he he drew the cycle of addiction, and uh, you know tears were rolling down my cheeks, and um, you know they said he said to me, "Is this something that you think you might like to do?" And I said, just tell me when, you know. I was just so humbled and raw that, you know, there might be some hope for me. Yeah. So is that the first time you'd gone to rehab? Yeah. 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 It was the first time that I became honest, totally. Yeah. You know. And what did that feel like? Um, it was like... It was like standing naked in front of 10,000 people. Yeah, okay. You know? yeah. <laughs> Another feeling. <laughs> yeah. It's like being on a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> been there. Yeah. Uh, okay, so with you, Travis, then, um, you'd just been arrested by the police. Things weren't looking too good. So what happened? Uh, I got no phone calls. I'd been shifted between places. I was under the cells at um, Frankston 
And I thought I was, yeah, I really thought I was in a lot of trouble. And that's when it really hit home that, yeah, you're not just getting let out on bail. Because every other time I've got in trouble, I've got out on bail and I've paid my way out. Okay. Like, yeah. had lawyers, yeah. said I'm going to be good again, yeah. behave for a while and then fall back into it. Yeah. This time, it was like, well, I think I've had too many chances. I think I'm in a lot of trouble because yeah. they wouldn't even let me have bail. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then it was like, uh-oh. And I got hold of my lawyers and they seen a drug counsellor. I've never spoken to a drug counsellor before. So what was that like? What did you learn? That there was the most relief I've ever had. Like sitting and she was a lovely person. I wasn't sure what I was going to... And you're sitting talking through bars. And it was like, I don't know, finally when she said, would you like to go to rehab? And I said, yeah. Yeah. And it was like it was just a massive burden lifted off your shoulders because I'd been over my lifestyle for a while, but lonely and didn't know any difference, like didn't know how to change what you've created. And when she said you can go to rehab, and would you like to do it? I think she said options, day release. So I said, no, 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 I'm happy to be stuck there because <laughs> <laughs> that might work. <laughs> and she said that's the best option, and I felt a lot of relief. And I had... And they basically reassured me while I was in the cells that I was going to get bailed to rehab, which still wasn't a signed deal yet, but that was such a relief. It made it so much easier being in the cells because yeah. it's not a lovely place. No. You know no, what I mean? No. So, um, so what did rehab start to do for you? To start off with, it was like it was a holiday camp. It was yeah. grouse. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what it's about. And they said to you at rehab that you won't, if you're here for 30 days, you get a bit of an idea, but they only get what you put in. And that, I was very cynical to start off with. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm in the wrong place. Denial for me. I kept saying it's a river in Egypt, being cheeky, mm. right? Because humour was always my go-to thing. Yeah. And then finally... After 60-something days, it finally, and all, you do the same classes over and over again, and when you do it a second and Eventually third time... Eventually it sinks in. <laughs> yeah, you look at the first things you wrote and you think, oh, was I really that cooked? <laughs> like, <laughs> looking back at some of it, going, oh, wow, that's what I wrote. So detoxing as well as um, having the classes and the constant um, consistency of getting up, making your bed, consistent meals, eating healthily, sleeping properly, and I've never, ever slept very well my whole life and I've blamed everything else other than the regime yep. um, made a huge difference just, just health set of, uh, mindset and being introduced to the 12 step program um, made things start to make sense and feeling part of and connection instead of just on your own that all the time was a huge eye opening to me it made me feel made me feel like a person again like not just an outsider everywhere yeah. And that sort of went through me in a way that by the end of rehab, oh, I really didn't want to leave. I was quite happy staying at rehab. It was a lovely little place. <laughs> <laughs> we don't often hear that about rehab. <laughs> okay, well, so we might take another break. G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. (laughs) 
Uh, you're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, I'm talking with Travis and James. We're talking about recovery from drug addiction through Narcotics Anonymous. Um, so, James, uh, you've just gone into rehab. You understand a bit about cycle of addiction. Yep. So what's it like now to be introduced to a 12-step program and start looking at your life? Well, um, I'm so grateful for that rehab that it was 12-step. You know, they they made us... Well, they took us on a bus uh, to NA meetings every day. And um, it was in NA that I experienced hope for the future, real hope. Um, and, you know, that secret that I spoke about earlier about having that feeling of, of not being a man, feeling inadequate and unlovable and all those those things that I brought with me through childhood. Um, you know, I didn't even know that was my secret, but there was no way I was ever going to be vulnerable about that stuff um, by myself. And when when the rehab took me to a meeting and I was sitting there in the chair and I heard a member speak about those exact same things that I was feeling, um, it was like it, it ignited my spirit and tears just poured out of my face and um, it was like his vulnerability and talking about that stuff made it just validated me and and then he went on to speak about how different his life is was that day and uh, and you know um, through doing the, the 12 steps myself you know I don't I don't identify with that little boy anymore you know I've grown up into a man in NA so did you believe that you could stop using? No. no. So what, what, what helped you to get to that point? It, it, was, it, was the, it was the hearing members in NA share about their stories. Yep. Um, you know, when people speak in NA and they speak truth, there's no denying it. And, um, and that, that connection of one addict helping another is is unparalleled. So one of the things they talk about talk about in 12 step um groups is the willingness. So when did you get the willingness to do what it took? Well, see I believed down to my core that there was no way I could ever stop using. I believed that I had a moral deficiency and I believed that my only solution for that was suicide and when I went to meetings and and got hope it was like I was given an alternative to death yeah and it, it just turned out to be so much more than just an alternative to death you know it was it was a spiritual awakening yeah yeah hope hopes basically that there's an alternative right that we're not stuck in this one path to to a, an undesirable end. That there is an alternative, and we can just swap swap tracks, and yeah, we can make it. Yep. Um, so over to you, Travis. Um, so you got into um, rehab. You got into twelve step programs. So how did how did the twelve step programs work on you? Um, to start off with, they, they weren't. They weren't for me, right? Yeah. Like, so what did you think of them? 
Oh, it was just seemed like AA was like these are all the same stories. These are just drunk people. Right? <laughs> I'm not drunk. <laughs> and then I wasn't sharing a lot to start off with in meetings. And then an older bloke said to me one day, which I reckon sarcastically, and it was really good for me. He's going to be, mate, just go there, right? You tell them all your problems, dump it on them, then leave, right? <laughs> and you feel better about it. I'm thinking, I'll give that What's a go. <laughs> yeah, I'll give that a go. And then when I started sharing, he's right, because the problem shared is a problem halved. Other people share something that's very similar to yourself and how they dealt with it. And then all of a sudden you've got some answers. And it was like his cynicism, right, really <laughs> convinced me by accident. <laughs> and I, I shared that with him when I went back to that meeting and he thought that was hilarious, right? And it was like he suckered me, right? <laughs> but now <laughs> I actually see how it works. And it was a really good awakening to that if you don't hold it all in and you share something with someone else, half the time they've done something worse, if not. That's right. Yeah. And they Not-for-it. share their experience and you don't feel so bad. And if they haven't, they still might laugh at you a little bit and it doesn't feel so bad either. Do you no. know what I mean? In a caring way. Yeah. You know, no one ever is cynical or anything like that. They just can understand it. And you can laugh together about some of the worst things you've ever done. Yeah. You know, and the insanity of it. <laughs> but you don't see it at the time. No, that's right. So how did it affect your relationships? Uh, I've never been so close to my family with truth and honesty now. I used to tell them the truth, but they didn't want to hear it. What you did in Melbourne, we don't want to know about, right? Because the denial for them was better than knowing about it. And I thought telling them the truth cleared my conscience. That helps. Help me, not them. Mm. Um, So that was pretty selfish. But now we can be genuinely honest with each other and the relationships are so much closer. I've been away with my father. I went away racing cars in Western Australia and the best time ever um, with all his brothers and stuff. It was, it was a little bit weird. It was my year anniversary and the brothers are still drinkers and stuff yep. and it's the Australian, you know, the way. And it was 36 degrees and that was sitting at the bar and I didn't want to drink but... I felt outside because no one offered to get me a Coke or a water. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I give it to them, right? I'm going, hey, I still drink, you know, it's 36 degrees. I might <laughs> die, right? <laughs> and that was the public sort of side of things. They were all trying to care and not make it uh, too hard for you, but they didn't know how to deal with it either. Yeah. So that's something you could pick up there that I just wanted to fit in. Yeah. You know, and Again, after yeah. my cynicism, it was all right. They all got me lots of water and lots of Coke, so that worked well for me. Yeah. <laughs> So um, what's NA like for you these days? I love NA. I go to NA all the time. It's like a, um, it's like a, f- a football club without the alcohol. Yeah. And uh, the com- camaraderie and <laughs> the things, the opportunities that you get, everyone's willing to help you. Um, uh, there was one uh, friend that I had an active addiction, the first meeting I went to down the peninsula, um, I'm outside having a cigarette and he's walked up to me and gone, I didn't think I'd ever see you here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and we've just, our friendship from one side of the fence to the other side of the fence is just absolutely astronomical. And they, by him and his other partner are both in the um, fellowships. They wrote me a glowing uh, reference to come to court. Uh, they came and turned up to court for me and uh, I think that was one of the turning points. Yeah. to getting a really good outcome and a second chance again. Well, maybe a fifth or sixth <laughs> chance, we'll see what it is. <laughs> but yeah. a real opportunity to go out and live a normal life. Yeah. And what is it about 
um, the people in the meetings about caring? You know, what, what is it? What's the special thing? The special thing is a lot of us are all people pleasers because we never fit it in. Yeah. And if you put that to good, or you've got a group of them together, yeah, like you, yeah. you don't feel any more love than you can. And the people that you think you wouldn't get along with, a few weeks into it, and they're people that you would never have been friends with. No. Because no. you're judgmental on their character or yeah. what sort of person they were. And I've got the biggest variety of friends now that I never thought I'd ever have. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, so, James, um, you got into NA. Mm. Things started to work out. So was it smooth sailing? Oh, definitely not. Um, you know, I had to learn how to process my feelings uh, that I hadn't processed without a drug in my system since, you know, since I was a boy. Um, the the tools, I had to learn a lot of tools to, to cope with um, negative emotions. And uh, one of the biggest tools was learning that they pass yeah. and that I am not my emotions. I can either decide to let my emotions govern who I am or I can choose who I want to be. Yeah. So did you find it hard to stay in NA? Uh, it, it wasn't hard because I had built a, like a, a, a support group in the meetings through going to meetings every day uh, with, with the rehab. Um, and, uh, you know, once... Once you get up there and you tell your story and you're vulnerable with a group of people and they accept you for that, they don't just accept you for who you really are, but they love you for it, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah. You know? And if you've told the truth, you've got nothing to hide. That's right. Yeah. So there's no, nobody can stab you in the back. Yeah. Um, so um, you did have some time out of NA. Right. So what's it like coming back? Um, I've I've heard a lot of stories of of you know the apprehension and the and the guilt that people feel after having a relapse and then and then that thought of coming back to the rooms. But you know when I was when I was using again after a traumatic time in my life, um, the the knowledge that there's a better way to live that I had learnt in NA and all the love that I knew that was there available to me when I came back to the rooms after a few weeks of using it was like I was home and there's I've, I've never felt anything like that and um, yeah like home yep so what about family relationships now is uh, it easier it, yeah it's it, I guess it, it all started um, at this rehab that I went to they had a they had an amazing family coordinator and uh his advice to my family was to go to Al-Anon and um, they took his advice and through Al-Anon they learnt healthy communication techniques and I was obviously learning that stuff as well through doing the steps and in rehab, cognitive behavioural therapy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But um, together over some time we sifted through all those toxic um behavioural traits and, and codependency and, and my relationship with my mum and my dad and my sister it's based it's based on honesty and vulnerability and love 
Yeah. And, and it's just a really amazing thing how family should be, you know? Yeah, it's rock solid, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what about within the fellowship? Um, do you have a sponsor? Yeah, I do. And, um, and, and having a relationship with a sponsor is, is I guess, the, the first example I had of how, how being honest and vulnerable in a relationship can, can give so much freedom um, inside. And not only um, be a great thing, but but generate so much uh, love and uh, connection. Yeah. Um, having a sponsor and doing the steps with a sponsor is the reason why I'm still alive. Okay, um, so over to you, Travis. Um, so, doing the twelve steps, what what sort of things did you uncover that you that helped you to get over your addictions? Well, you know, what I thought I was not good at, um, just self awareness, the um, self confidence in being the person I am, and people will actually like me for who I am. Yeah, not instead of trying to be what something I, else. Yeah, trying to be something else. Yeah. And just ducking back to rehab, there was one of the classes we did there where you ran, hand around a bit of paper and people wrote down what they thought of you. Yep. Right? And I was always trying so hard for people to like me. Yeah. And after you did that class and you got to read what everyone wrote anyway, basically it said, you're trying too hard, we already like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a fair reality check for what I didn't consciously know and was always battling against. That really helped. That turned one of the tides to make... You understand that you don't have to try so hard, and, it don't, and as they always say in, uh, in the rooms, it's like it doesn't matter what someone else thinks of you. you know no. I mean, that's not your; it's none of your business. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was always worried about that. Yeah. So that, and also that, how big addict I actually was. Just because you could pay for it and you worked harder to pay for it, didn't mean you weren't an addict. Yeah. You know, I always thought an addict was someone that had no money and was you know broke, or it was living on the streets and stuff like that. It just shows within the rooms that there's top-end addicts, there's bottom-end Everyone that's an addict is just an addict. Yep. And there's no difference from whatever uh, social scene, money scene, whether you grew up with a good upbringing or a bad upbringing, we're still all exactly the same when you've got an addictive personality. Yeah. So what's life like in NA for you now? What do you what do? You do? I, um, I'm secretary at one of the NA meetings. Um, it's a lovely little meeting. We have um, one of the rehabs come there. And I knew what it was like being in rehab, so I always take chocolate cake and eat lollies because I don't get it in rehab. <laughs> <laughs> Their facilitators look at me like, yeah, I go, I know what rehab's about. Right? <laughs> if it makes them come to the meetings to start with, it helps. <laughs> but it's a lovely atmosphere, and all the kids like to share and stuff, which oh, I love that. We make it friendly, and I know what it's like when you first went. Um, if anyone asks, I've opened up a few meetings, like I've got friends that open meetings and stuff. If they can't make it, I'll be there. Anyone asks for any assistance in any way I can that doesn't do people-pleasing or harm myself, I'll assist. Um, I've had a couple of uh, recovering addicts stay with me, right, because they need to get back on their feet, and that's always a really good feeling, you know what I mean? And I only do the best of my ability, and if they're not coping, I've still also got to set boundaries. Yeah. And that's one thing I learned big time, is yeah. the boundary setting and don't be a people-pleaser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, all very important. 
Okay. Um, if anybody's out there who's got a problem with drugs of any kind, or you know somebody who has, um, and you want to find out a bit more, you can call Narcotics Anonymous Helpline on one three hundred six five two eight two zero or mobile number o four eight 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 one one two four seven. We can go online at na.org.au. Okay, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Travis and James for coming into the 3CR studio and sharing their Narcotics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Um, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from food addiction and we'll be talking to Sandra and Anna from Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. Uh, Stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, uh, hosted by Kerry Lee and featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Uh, thanks for listening to the Living Free program today. And to take us out, we've got a song called Animal Animal by Eve Popper. Brother, when the flood comes, none of us will float. We'll thrash around while water comes screaming down our throat. It'll drown the pretty things we said and march us down the road like a trophy, like trash, trash, trash. It won't matter what empire you've made. Discrimination, no one will be saved and phased down anonymous. The lot of us will say we're just living on borrowed time. Don't pretend you are saved from chest and we're all the same beast when we get undressed wrestling with our appetites and you